0: Hello and welcome to The Wire, your independent national coverage of current Affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mimi Shiku, coming to you from 3 Z Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. And today on the show.
1: I was very fortunate or we were very fortunate because in that area we left without power for around 52 hours.
0: Queensland faces a $2 billion recovery after storms hit the southeastern region, causing widespread devastation. Experts warn of a 2024 coral bleaching crisis due to rising temperatures, with severe impacts predicted. And later today.
2: Well, some of those include um, costs, not only in time, but in money. So if you think about how much you actually pay when you commute to the office.
0: Employees desiring increased flexibility at work grapple with a dilemma as companies push for more office days. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Queensland, South, East and Far North are grappling with aftermath of back-to-back natural disasters with a recovery cost exceeding $2 billion, according to the state treasurer Cameron Dick. The devastation resulted from powerful storms hitting the Gold Coast, Logan and Scenic Rim on Christmas and New Year's Day, counting for three-quarters of the total damage bill. I speak with executive producer from 4EB radio station, Eduardo Jordan, on how his home was impacted with a long power outage on Christmas Day.
1: Wow, it was one of those days, Mimina, because I was coming back from Hobart and it looked like such a beautiful day. It was sunny, it was amazing. And then at night... All of these storms started brewing around, and potentially, I would guess, at around 7.30 or 8.30, it started to pour. It started to have lots of lightnings. Um, they were recorded more than 200,000 lightnings uh, on that day. And approximately, I would say, that, that around 8.30, the power has was gone in my Household. I live in a suburb um called Merrimack, which is in central Gold Coast. Uh, let's remind uh the, the listeners that Gold Coast is a very extended area. So it goes from Pimpama, which is between Brisbane and the Gold Coast, down to Kulangara, which makes border with New South Wales. So it's a very <clears throat> it's a very extended area. So we we basically left, we were out of Power. And we didn't know what was happening. And then the following day, we just been notified that it was going to be a slow recovery on connecting all the houses to the to the power grid. And they didn't have an estimated time, so we knew that at that time it was going to be a slow, but and and a difficult journey at least during the Christmas period. Around a hundred and thirty, around a thirty. Around 130,000 households and small businesses left without power at the Gold Coast.
0: And how long were you left without power at your place?
1: I was very fortunate or we were very fortunate because in that area we left without power for around 52 hours. So from the night from Christmas Day until the 28th of December at around 1.20 in the morning, that's when the light came back and the power came back. Uh, we were very fortunate because it was just 52 hours, but some uh, people in Mount Tambourine, which is in the hinterland region of the Gold Coast, uh, they just reconnected the power last Sunday. So it was more than two weeks without power, without electricity. You mentioned it was just 52 hours, but that is a long
0: time to go without power. How how did it impact your household or or other households in your area?
1: Because, for example, we were having the aircon on that um, on Christmas Day. The it was scorching hot, and it was I, I believe we reached around thirty-seven or thirty-eight degrees on Christmas Day, and it was really really hot. We had to turn the AC on, and you know to to <laughs> because it's summer and it's too hot, and all of a sudden living without aircon, living without. Uh, <clears throat> You know, try not to open the fridges because all the food will be going into waste. Uh, We couldn't even recharge our mobile phones. We had to go to another facility who had a a generator to recharge all the mobile phones, computers, uh, emergency lamps, camping lamps, etc. Power banks as well. Uh, And it took us around four hours uh, recharging everything. But at the end, I mean, we just realized that without electricity, we, you know, we depend so much on electricity. It's not funny. And yeah, so they were 52 hours with scotching hot weather. Fortunately, we had a barbecue grill outside and we could uh, cook our meals there. It, it, It was a challenge. I also slept on the floor because it was so hot that the only place that I could sleep was on the floor.
0: Are thunderstorm power outages common? in the region you live in, in Queensland?
1: At the moment, we're in storm season. So there are a lot of storms happening throughout the summer. It rains um, a little bit. Uh, it, it rains it rains considerably. But this is the first time that I've seen a storm like that. And I believe the, um, the government and the authorities were saying that uh, this could be considered as a cyclone, kind of a cyclone. Because the amount of lightnings and the amount of damage that has caused around the Gold Coast and the Gold Coast hinterland is pretty much the same as a cyclone has passed by.
0: Yep, yeah. and and you mentioned that uh, a lot of homes in the area were at were without um, power for um, almost two weeks. Um, what has the government done to, I guess, support those impacted? by the power outage or um, have had structural damage um, in their homes um, due to this uh, thunderstorm?
1: The Queensland Government under the Premier uh, Stephen Miles has opened through the um, Emergency Recovery Authority. uh, They've liberated a lot of uh, payment emergency relief for Queenslanders who are affected. One of them is, you know, the emergency relief payments for $180 for individuals and up to $900 per family. Uh, There are other emergency relief payments, like essential, if, you know, you don't have food on your fridge and you need to buy everything again, uh, you you can apply for that. There's also, like, structural uh, relief payments. Uh, If your house is severely damaged, the government can help. Also, the federal government announced today that there will be more emergency support for Queenslanders uh, under the federal, um, on a federal level.
0: That was executive producer from 4EB radio station, Eduardo Jordan, speaking to The Wire. Experts are predicting a coral bleaching crisis in 2024, driven by soaring land and sea temperatures. A professor from the University of Queensland is sounding the alarm about the impending catastrophe, emphasizing its critical impact on coral reefs, describing it as uncharted territory and a potential tipping point. Historically data suggests that extreme marine heat waves in 2023 could lead to a mass bleaching event in Indo-Pacific in twenty four and twenty-five. Coral bleaching occurs when coral loses their algae due to stress factors like high temperatures, posing a severe threat to these ecosystems. The wires. Vanessa Gatica speaks with Cathy La, an environmental science graduate from Melbourne University, about the looming crisis of coral bleaching and mortality expected in 2024.
3: Well, this coral bleaching. And how does it occur? Yes, so a coral reef is an underwater ecosystem which provides food and habitat to several marine organisms. There are these zooxanthellae, which are a type of algae that reside in their tissues, and they not only give the corals their colour, but also provide them with the food and energy necessary to survive through photosynthesis. Now, when corals are subjected to stressful conditions, These algae are expelled. Uh, What we have left is essentially a white skeleton, which will most likely die without the zooxanthellae, and this is what we call coral bleaching. What are the main causes of coral bleaching? So there are a number of uh, different environmental stresses that can trigger a bleaching event. Pollution is one of them. For instance, runoff can carry pollutants like pesticides or herbicides into the ocean. Uh, invasive species can also cause harm to our corals. The Northern Pacific sea star is one such example we have in Australia and it's known to prey quite aggressively on some of our native marine species, which then results in a decline in native biodiversity. Overfishing and unsustainable fishing practices can also lead to a decline in key reef species and weaken these ecosystems. Uh, And one of the other main causes of coral bleaching is the warming of sea temperatures. Corals can be quite sensitive to changes in temperature, and heat can definitely be a source of stress, uh, which there are growing concerns around, especially in the context of climate change. How does coral bleaching impact marine ecosystems and the environment? The effects of coral bleaching can be quite pervasive because corals are considered to be a keystone species in marine ecosystems. It's said that about a quarter of the global fish population are reliant on these reefs. And as I touched on before, the loss of coral reefs can lead to a significant reduction in these reef fish species. So mass coral bleaching events have the potential to really tip our marine ecosystems out of balance. And reefs can recover from bleaching events, given sufficient time and conditions, but this will take years. What are some of the most promising solutions to prevent or mitigate coral bleaching? There are innovative solutions coming out all the time, especially from the scientific community. Some of these include improving water quality, establishing reef restoration projects, um, building up. Important coastal habitats like seagrasses and mangroves. And there are even heat resistant corals that have been developed um, by scientists. But one of, if not the greatest solution to coral bleaching, is the commitment to limit global warming. Uh, There are a lot of targets being set to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, which would alleviate a large number of environmental issues. And whether or not we follow Through with that commitment is a different story, but it's one that we need to uphold in order to reach a positive outcome here. What can individuals do to help protect coral reefs and prevent coral bleaching? There are definitely uh, things that we can do here and there on an individual level. One of them is to simply respect the corals as living beings. Uh, Corals are actually animals with a very rudimentary body plan. And so sometimes our interactions with a reef can be damaging. Reefs can be hotspots for diving and tourist activities in general, but it's important that we avoid direct contact with the corals. Then there are other things like wearing reef-friendly sunscreen and eating sustainable seafood. But personally, I think one of the greatest things we can do is to educate ourselves on the issue where possible and just to have conversations with the people around us. I believe that those conversations can help us make more informed decisions, especially when it comes to voting for political parties that align with our own values.
0: That was Kathy La, an environmental science graduate from Melbourne University, speaking to the wise Vanessa Gatika. This week, Federal Environment Minister Tania Plibersek vetoed an offshore wind farm in Victoria claiming there are inversible risks to endangered wildlife in the area. The Port of Hastings plan was proposed by Victorian government and it would have become the first offshore wind farm in Australia. Conservationists have welcomed the decision and the wise Eduardo Jordan asked Nature Campaigner from the Victorian National Parks Association, Shannon Hurley, to explain more about the project.
4: So the Port of Hastings had in a proposal at both the state and federal government levels for the consideration to develop a port facility at the Port of Hastings, which is in Western Port Bay, which is a Ramsar wetland. And this proposal was to support the Victoria's transition to renewable energy and as a Victorian renewable energy hub to really support all the offshore wind farms in the future in Victoria.
1: So, why is the Victorian National Parks Association happy with Tanya Plibersek's decision on blocking this project?
4: Yes, yeah, so the project proposed dredging of about 92 hectares of Ramsar wetlands and the reclamation of land back to support the port infrastructure. And because of the nature of this development, there was a huge risk... To what makes Western Port Bay so special. It's a Ramsar wetland. It's important for about 65% of Victoria's threatened bird species. And the nature of the development which was proposed would have actually posed unacceptable impacts, which is deemed by the Minister, by the Federal Minister, that would have destroyed parts of the wetlands, impacting on these really critical threatened species and resulted in permanent loss of these habitats, which are just really important for the feeding and supporting of all the threatened species and the marine life and actually makes this wetland internationally recognised and protected. And, you know, we we definitely need renewable energy. We need to make that transition. But why the NPA welcomed the decision was because it cannot come at a cost to the marine environment. And so this decision highlights the need for the Victorian government to put in thorough environmental protections to really support this transition for any energy proposals.
1: So what would you like to see implemented in the area instead of this wind farm? Yeah,
4: so uh, we're not to say that we don't want any wind farms. We we definitely recognize that we need renewable energy and wind farms, but they just need to be done in a way that actually is working with the marine environment instead of destroying it. And so the Victorian government can actually put in place... Proper marine planning, which actually avoids really important and critical sensitive marine areas with a lot of threatened species. So last year the government was the Victorian government was presented with a new proposal, which was backed by community, traditional custodians, tourism, a lot of local businesses in Western Port Bay for a new plan to protect Western Port Bay's wetlands and to really support sustainable marine and tourism industries. And what we really need is the Victorian government to commit to implementing that plan within this term of government.
1: And what other in protections does the area need from the Victorian government so it's well protected?
4: So it needs a new plan really manage a lot of the threats from development from you know lots of uh, new projects that are proposed in the area including many energy projects which is not just the wind farm but many others uh, and it needs a plan it needs a new partnership bringing together all the different interested stakeholders over western port bay to come together to really make decisions with the ecological and environmental protection at the forefront of the decision making and it needs a new western port bay fund to be able to support the development of the plan and bring together all the different stakeholders and decision makers that are making decisions over Western Port Bay's really unique and special Ramsar wetlands.
1: So the Victorian state government showed their disappointment about this this project being vetoed from the federal uh, government. They had said that you know Australians we might face higher energy prices without this offshore wind farm. Are there alternatives to build this farm? You think that you know might contribute to this renewable energy transition? Yeah, definitely. So
4: the federal environment minister's decision has resulted in the Victorian government um, has a few options as they can reconsider their current proposal and make some changes and come back, or they can actually determine other locations for the development of port facilities. But either way, the BNPA's position is that we really need to be protecting the marine environment and nature in the process of these energy transitions.
0: Nature campaigner at the Victorian National Parks Association, Shannon Hurley there, speaking with the wise Eduardo Jordan. As companies push for a return to office, employees could now face a dilemma. Major tech giants like Zoom and Google are leading the return, contradicting the preference for flexible work arrangements established during lockdowns. The clash could spark a career trend called Flexitus, where workers seek jobs offering greater flexibility. I speak to Dr. Melissa Wheeler, Senior Lecturer in Business Administration at RMIT University. Could we potentially see an exodus of staff in workplaces um, if not given the opportunity of flexible work arrangements?
2: Yes, I would say that a lot of employees are putting flexibility at the top of their list of things that they find important. And that can be for many reasons. It's not just to care for children, although that is of course a a high reason why people value flexibility, but it can be to participate in community events. It can be to be more present with um, family and friends outside of that caring relationship. And when employees are seeing, I guess that, mandated return to work, um, it's likely going to get them looking, where else could I enjoy working that's not going to put these same restraints on my time.
0: And why are major tech companies um, like Google or Amazon insisting on a return to office? And how is this impacting the employees?
2: Some of it comes from tech giants like Elon Musk speaking outwardly and openly about his disdain for flexible work arrangements or specifically for remote working and working from home. Um, I think he labeled it not only a productivity problem, but a moral problem, problem. And, you know, from an employer's point of view and from a manager's point of view, it's kind of nice to be able to walk around the floor to see your employees engaging in the work that they're doing, to not have to rely on blind trust to be able to physically see what's going on, not to mention, um, you know, having those employees there and ready to answer questions. If you say got a call from a client, you could tap them on the shoulder and get that immediate reaction.
0: And uh, at the start, we discussed that um, you know employees want flexible work arrangements due to family. Um, Arrangements, or um, you know, just flexibility. But what are uh, some of the benefits employees experience during remote working?
2: Well, some of those include um, cost, not only in time but in money. So, if you think about how much you actually pay when you commute to the office, you're likely looking at um, petrol, parking, tolls, or you know, paying for public transport if that's your option. You're likely to have more likely to have lunch out, coffees out. Um, and those things begin to add up on a daily basis that we used to just, you know that was kind of part of what you paid to work. You're paid a certain amount and in in return, you're responsible for these kinds of costs. But as employees are figuring out um, that if they can work from home and they can do it well, then why do they need to lose sometimes three or maybe four hours of their life if they have a long commute just to go into work and sit in the closed office and continue to do Zoom meetings?
0: And would you say that the pandemic has influenced uh, flexible work arrangements or or working from home uh, situations?
2: Yeah, so the pandemic was a big challenge. It was, um, and, you know, this kind of big thing that we all had to deal with. And it showed that a lot of things that we thought were impossible were actually pretty possible when they needed to be. And so that really opened the doors to think, you know, flexible work isn't one thing. It's not just working from home. It can be the time that you start work. It could be the time that you end work. It could be the fact that you are an incredibly creative person in the middle of the night and you want to get your best work done at that time. And so with the pandemic it was kind of like a little exercise where we could try it out. Let's see what kind of flexible what kind of work can be done remotely and at different times and asynchronously. And with that experiment and the results of that experiment, some people are unwilling to go back to the old ways because why go back when we've proven or in some cases people have proven that it works just fine.
0: You know, employees like having employees in in the office like they like that accessibility to tap on the shoulder kind mm-hmm. of over, oversee employees but how can employees build trust with their employees outside of working from the office? I think that's a really big challenge and one of the things that we're seeing um, with supervisors
2: and managers is that they don't have those skills yet they don't have that capability to know how to guide people and to facilitate trust that goes both ways and so it's not just about training, um, while that would be really helpful to have, um, you know, consultants or some someone internal to come in who specializes in building good relationships in a virtual setting. And there's plenty of people that we can learn from who have worked in multi countries across different countries for years. Um, so without the, that skill and training, we can't just expect managers to know how to do this effectively.
0: Dr. Melissa Wheeler, Senior Lecturer in Business Administration at RMIT University, speaking to The Wire. And unfortunately, that is the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening wherever you are in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between Community Radio Stations, 3 Z in Melbourne, 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 4 Z and Radio 4EB in Brisbane. With the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Kula Nations where the program has been produced and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. I'm Amina Shikud, coming to you from 3 Z Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. Thanks so much for your company, and we'll see you next time on The Wire.